The reason that was my worst investment ever is if I had stayed, for those who don't know, the stock price, I think is like 500X or something since that time or, or whatever, whatever I'd done. I think I probably left between like mid eight digits worth of stock on the table. So on the scale of like tens of millions of dollars. And so that one hurts because I basically gave up that opportunity to then spend money on tuition to get a degree that I would end up not using. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Join our community to claim your podcast listener discount on my Valuation Masterclass Bootcamp, where students learn how to value companies like a pro and advance their career. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com to join our community for free. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guests, Brennan Spellacy. Brennan, are you ready to rock? I am. All right. Well, let me introduce you to the audience. Brennan is one of the co-founders and CEO of Patch, the platform for negative emissions. Prior to starting Patch, Brennan worked in a range of product and engineering roles at Sonder and Shopify. (laughs) Easy for me to say. Brennan, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, Andrew, thank you so much for having me. So, I mean, as far as my life, grew up in New York. I'm a dual citizen. I'm American and Canadian. So I actually studied up north at a school called McGill, studied chemical engineering with the intention of working in renewable energy. That ended up not working out. I ended up becoming a programmer at Shopify, like you mentioned, and then joined Saunders shortly after that, and then ended up founding Patch about 15 months ago. Since starting Patch, for I guess for listeners, just a little bit of extra context on what Patch is, you can kind of think of us as a two-sided marketplace for carbon markets. And so what that means is on the supply side of our ecosystem, we have all these different ways to sequester carbon. For those who don't know, sequestering carbon refers to taking carbon out of the atmosphere with the intention of mitigating climate change. You then take that capacity to sequester that carbon, make it transactable electronically through the patch platform, and then expose it through both a visual interface. So you can kind of think of it like an Airbnb for carbon or a programmatic interface, which is an API. And for, again, for those who don't know, an API is how computers talk to each other. So you can essentially build climate positive or carbon neutral applications using the Patch API. So we work with a really wide variety of companies across crypto, fintech, e-commerce, logistics, travel to launch sustainable products. And so the way to think about Patch is we help you stand up a sustainability program in a fraction of the time. And maybe um, you could explain like a case study or an example of a company that some, that people would, because even for me, as I think about it, it's still a little bit esoteric. Can you tell us about a company that, you know, that found Patch and has really, you know, put to use what you have? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's actually this great D2C brand that sells probiotics called Seed, Seed.com, super easy to remember. Mm. And a huge kind of brand pillar of seed is the idea of sustainable living and healthy living and really having kind of this link between both like one's body and the earth. And so when they were actually putting their program together, a huge kind of piece that was important to them was sustainability. And the unfortunate reality is 
based on how supply chains work today, there's no way to produce any product really in an emissionless fashion. You know, we're kind of working to roll out more renewable energy, recyclable materials, et cetera. But at the end of the day, every kind of product is going to have a footprint. And so what we ended up doing with Seed is they actually came to us and said, hey, we want to basically neutralize our carbon footprint. We know what it is. And so what they actually did was they integrated Patches API into their order management system. And so whenever an order for a box of probiotics or a box of whatever their new product actually might be kind of comes across, comes across their warehouse, they have a software system that pings Patches API that says, hey, that, that box of pills was 100 kilograms of CO2 to produce. And so they send that 100 kilogram number into Patch. We then match it with an appropriate provider based on their settings. Settings could be geography, price, things like this. Not all carbon is created equal. And then that capacity then shows up on the desk of the supplier who's required to sequester that carbon. And basically patch manages all of that behind the scenes complexity to make sure that work actually gets done. And when we think about the carbon footprint of a company like Seed, we're talking about, you know, they, they use electricity to, to heat or cool their operation. They use electricity to run their operation. They may try to offset some of that with solar or something like that. There yeah. also is chemicals that are derived from fossil fuels that are being used as fertilizer, that type of thing. So they add all that up and they understand their carbon footprint. That part's pretty clear. What's not clear to me is the other part where you said that that, that okay, now, now they say, okay, you know, we've consumed or we have this much responsibility for this much carbon please help us because we don't, we, we don't have the capacity to somehow deal with that. So on the other end, when that, when that comes on to the other side of the marketplace that it sounds like what Patch is doing, what exactly are they doing? What does that mean on the other side of that? Yeah, absolutely. So on the, that's the supply side. Of okay, the got it. <laughs> and so the supply side in the Patch world are essentially these groups of people called carbon offset developers or carbon removal developers. And so carbon removal or carbon offset developer is essentially a business or an organization that develops land with the intent of compensating or sequestering carbon. And so that can be as familiar as planting a forest where they can actually sequester carbon through photosynthesis, where the carbon is actually stored in the biomass of the tree. But that can also be as foreign or as human engineered as something like direct air carbon capture where you can think of direct air carbon capture as these large fans that suck ambient air through this machine and the machine actually filters out the carbon and leaves it behind and the pure air comes out the other side. And so what we're doing is we're essentially like a work queue. We're saying, hey, you have hundred kilos here, 10 tons there, 10 tons here. And they're actually receiving that work and then executing on it because they have a separate software experience that no buyers see that they actually manage their work on patch through. So they're providing us proof of fulfillment where fulfillment is the carbon is sequestered. And then once they provide that fulfillment to us, we release funds. And so we're acting as this intermediary to kind of both aggregate demand, but also make sure the transaction is secure and safe for both parties involved. And so basically you're matching supply and demand, which basically means that suppliers are much more likely to develop supply if they know that they're going to get a consistent demand coming through the platform and therefore this is really you know this is this is easy business for them now as opposed to them having to find that that demand 
on their own through a network of salespeople or whatever that would be. Would that be describing it right? Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely accurate. I mean, I think I would be naive to say we were the majority of the kind of wallet or spend or, or purchasing power of any specific supplier today because we are just a 15-month-old startup. Yeah. That being said, the intent is to eventually kind of hit the scale where we're you know, driving 30, 40, 50, 60% of, of the sales for any one of our suppliers. And um, how was that supplier finding that demand before you came along? Uh, B2B, B2B sales and B2B procurement, really. So, you know, hiring a bunch of folks and pounding the pavement, reaching out to people. Some large organizations actually have, uh, like Microsoft or Shopify, actually, funnily enough, run RFP processes where they say, hey, I want to procure $5 million or $10 million worth of carbon removal for my sustainability goals. And so... These organizations would apply to those, but there's actually all this long tail of demand that none of them actually have the time to capture, which is kind of patch a sweet spot because we don't need to sell to each individual organization because it's software. And so it's really easy to kind of get folks onboarded programmatically, and then it kind of effectively runs itself more or less versus if a supplier would have to like have a paper contract, send out a DocuSign and actually work with each one of these folks directly because they don't have that kind of software and that automation piece in between them. Fascinating. And it also makes it easier for the demand side. So you're a small company and you say, we really want to live up to these goals. All you got to do is plug into that and then you can immediately match up with the supply. One last question on this. I mean, I find it fascinating. And, you know, you look like such a young guy compared to my hairstyle that I just was, you know, just curious, you know, to think more about it. It's an impressive startup. And the question I have is basically when, when the on the demand side, when they put that into the system and then somebody else, you know, responds to that and provides a supply, is there a money transaction that's happening or is there a credit transaction or how does that work for, let's just say the, the demand side, do they need to put money into the system or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the other kind of added benefits of being a buyer on patch is you don't have to negotiate payment terms or kind of essentially do any sort of B2B procurement process with each supplier. And so if you wanted to buy, you know, from 15 suppliers, historically we need 15 contracts. With Patch, you just need one contract. And so you kind of sign up with us, you buy as much as you want, you know, 10 grams, a hundred thousand tons. We can kind of we can do it all on the platform and we'll actually invoice you once a month. Once we take all of those funds in, depending on when that work gets done, we'll disperse it based on when we get proof of fulfillment. So some people commit to doing the work in 2021. Sometimes people are committing, it's almost like a futures contract where they're going to do work in 2022 or 2023. And so by, well, essentially from a flow of funds perspective, we're almost acting as this intermediary escrow agent where we're kind of this neutral third party sitting in between with the legal protections and indemnities on both sides to make sure that if anything goes wrong, we have recourse in either direction. Mm. That reminds me, I read many years ago, the four hour work week and Tim Ferriss talked about, you know, using Elance at the time, which has now become Upwork. And I started mm-hmm. using it then. And I've actually, they gave me a report a while ago of how much money I had spent since I started on Upwork and it had been a half a million dollars. And, wow. And, wow. You know, so in other words, I've used it extensively. And mm-hmm. when I explain it to people, I say, you know, there's just no way I could find this guy in Yugoslavia and this lady in Philippines 
that really can do exactly what I need to be done. But more importantly, even if I found them, the contract, the trust, the distribution of funds, the protection, all that is done by the marketplace of Upwork. So yeah. now, now I'm understanding a little bit more about your business. And I mean, if you understand software marketplaces, you, for the most part, understand Patch. It's 80% the same with 20% special sauce because it's carbon markets. Yeah. But it really operates like any other marketplace. And one other, I just kind of, I, I'm going to get into the question, ladies and gentlemen, very soon. But just Please. one last thing is, tell us about your funding, you know, I don't know, your valuation or your work with, uh, you know, wh who is interested in funding your company and what are you doing about funding? Yeah, absolutely. So we're in San Francisco and we, we've had the privilege to have access to the kind of private fin financing capital networks that, are, that come with Silicon Valley. So most recently, we raised a $4.5 million seed round led by Jeff Jordan and Jason Horowitz. You, that name might be familiar for folks if you know like Airbnb or Instacart, because it's on the board of both of these companies, as well as a few others. In addition, we actually today, at like, to like September 1st, we actually closed our Series A. I won't say who it's with because we haven't announced yet, but depending on when this comes out, it may have already been announced. We're announcing mid-September, yeah. and that's going to be a $20 million round. And wow. so heading in the right direction, we kind of have the capital and the team to get this done. And so it's really going to come down to if we're able to, to execute, if we're going to end up being successful, which is the kind of best kind of situation I think to be in. It's very rare you're in a situation where most things are, quote unquote, in your control. And so that kind of feels like the situation we're in, at least today. Mm. See, see how I feel in 12 months, but that, that's where we're feeling, how we're feeling right now. Exciting. Well, you know, one of the premises of this podcast is that one of the predictors of success is ultimately a person's ability to look back at the mistakes and failures and struggles that they've been through, you know, objectively. And so now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, take a minute to fill any further tidbits about, you know, the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So my worst investment ever actually goes back to my time at Shopify. So I'll provide a little extra extra context and kind of the, the lead up to it and then what ended up happening. So I had really just gotten a few both pharmacy and chemical engineering internships while I was at McGill. I was like I think like 19 or 19 or 20 at the time. And I didn't really want to do any of those things. You know, working on gas was like essentially against who I am now that you know what patches. And so I really didn't want to work on these things. And all my friends who were in computer science, software engineering, were programming, they're having an absolute blast. And I thought that seemed pretty cool and way more interesting than, you know, fluid dynamics or something like that. So I was like, oh, maybe I can learn how to program and kind of dive into that world. And so I attended a few hackathons. And so for those who don't know a hackathon, it's kind of like a 24, 48 hour straight programming contest. One, actually one, one actually, <laughs> and like learn, learn, to, learn how to program. And then I began applying to software engineering internships for that, for that same summer, summer of 2014 or 2015. Ended up getting an interview with Shopify, which was awesome. At the time, they had just raised their Series C, so they were, hadn't even IPO'd yet. I think they were 300, 350 people. And for whatever reason, like bombed every interview, essentially. And for whatever reason, they still gave me the job. They still gave me the internship. For whatever reason, they, they saw something in me, got the role actually learned how to program. So I thought I knew how to program before. I didn't. And then I actually learned, you know, at least now I think I know. I may have another experience in the future where I realize I know nothing now, but 
learned a serious a serious amount more while at Shopify. It was an incredible experience. Super supportive network and culture there. And around, I think it was either September or October, towards the end of my of that same year, towards the end of my internship, we were like four or five months in. The my hiring manager at the time kind of came to me and said, "Hey, like, so you know, we think this has been going incredibly well. We'd love to have you join full time and as as like a kind of like a junior junior software developer." And they had not realized that I had two years left of university. And so I came back. I was like, oh, like, you know, I still have school. And they're like, oh, no, I didn't even realize that. I had totally forgotten. No problem. If you want want, or if you want to drop out or take a gap year, though, the offer still stands. Like we don't, like Shopify is actually notorious for not caring about degrees or your background, which I think is incredible. And has actually, and to them having an unfair advantage, in my opinion, in many cases, where they've actually acquired a lot of really great talent. Because people can, they other companies can really overlook other people, and you know, I basically went back and forth, seriously considered dropping out, and ended up not doing it. I stayed on for a little bit longer, did a little bit of extra contracting work, but then ended up leaving, and then finished my chemical engineering degree two years later, and then joined Sonder after that. The reason that was my worst investment ever is if I had stayed. For those who don't know, the stock price I think is like. 500x or something since that time or, or whatever might have whatever I'd done. I think I probably left between like mid eight digits worth of stock on the table. So on the scale of like tens of millions of dollars. And so that one hurts because I basically gave up that opportunity to then spend money on tuition to get a degree that I would end up not using. You know, maybe use it a little bit today with patch and so and as well as just some intangible things that uh, I certainly don't want to overlook as well as relationships I built while at university. And being said, financially, it was a huge mistake. Um, and, and here we are today. And uh, how do you know that you would have, were they offering stock in that time, like uh, t- as compensation? Or how do you know that you would have had stock? Oh, yeah. So every every offer has, well, not stock, but it's options. So like options price at the fair market value at the time, which compared to the price today is, is basically like a 99% or 99% differential. Okay. And um, I guess uh, the other question is, how do you know that, that you wouldn't have just spent that money and had a disastrous life? <laughs> That's spent, another question. Uh, so spent the, um, wait, sorry, we're spending which money? The, the proceeds uh, if, for the if, software. If, yeah. If you could have gotten, I mean, I'm just joking around with kind of an alternate history, but Sometimes when we think about the things that we miss, we miss some other things. So yeah, I'm just teasing. But one oh, other totally. thing, I, I just wanted to mention uh, one of the guys that was on this podcast, Janaean Iqbal, he was episode 340. And I just think it's important to note his business right. is called nodegree.com. Now, it's not the same in many cases as to what you're talking about as someone's getting a huge opportunity they're really, you know, at the top of their game and, you know, they could get out of school or stay in. This is for people that, that end up in the workforce and do not have a degree. And I just thought it was interesting that you mentioned that people are missing, the companies are missing opportunities and, you know, just made me think about that. Totally. Um, no, I, I completely agree. Yeah. So tell me what lessons did you learn from this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the biggest one, like that's, and honestly, like you don't actually feel the twang of anxiety. I actually didn't feel that that twang of like, ah, oh, that was a mistake two years later. It was actually more like in the recent, like two or three years from today, looking back, back at like 2016, 2017, 2018, when like Shopify has basically had like an unprecedented bull run. 
and I think really like the biggest learning there is understanding asymmetric risk and an asymmetric upside. And so if you kind of actually objectively looked at the situation or, or crossroads I was at, you know, I had the option of either getting paid that day. So earning like a good, a good, like decent entry level software engineering salary to continue doing work I really enjoyed or to kind of go back to school. There's nothing wrong with going back to school. The thing is though, McGill actually has a very generous degree deferral program. So there's no, like McGill does not disappear overnight. Mm-hmm. So there was like, when you think about asymmetric risk, it's like walking away from that offer is incredibly, you're giving up a lot versus you're not actually walking away from McGill. You're just saying, I'm going to postpone it for a year. I'm going to test the Shopify thing out, see if I like it. If I don't, I can always go back to McGill. I've learned that lesson. I'm going to graduate one year later. Nothing, nothing, you know, nothing. Uh, what's the expression? Nothing harmed, nothing ventured. Uh, nothing lost, nothing ventured. Versus the opposite where it's essentially a one-way door to say no, Shopify. You know, the idea, you could have gone back two years later, but there's actually a huge kind of differential in the stock appreciation, even in those two years. And so I think for me, I should have kind of thought a little bit more critically around, you know, what is actually temporary versus not like what's the fleeting opportunity versus not and actually evaluated i had laid out this plan of i'm going to have to go to a four-year school and do whatever else i had new information at that time and i didn't actually reevaluate the plan critically i just thought i have the same plan i'm going to stick to the plan that i had committed to follow through is an incredibly important attribute that being said if you have new information it's worth reevaluating situations the calculus changes and what was the force that was telling you in your mind that you should just go back and finish this? Is it something that you just always believed in? Your parents said, look, you got to get an education or society or what was it that, you know, drove you back to that? Yeah. You know, I think it's probably a mix of things. I mean, first and foremost, I don't really perceive myself as a quitter. And so the idea of quitting something, I think, especially at the time just felt, and honestly, if I was faced with a comparable situation today, I actually truthfully cannot say if I would react differently. Like, I would like to think I would, mm-hmm. but you know, humans are rational and I'm, I am also a human, so I can't say with for certain. So first and foremost is like the idea of quitting or even temporarily quitting something just felt off. The second is my parents, like I was very fortunate where my parents were paying for my education, which is an incredibly privileged position to be in. And so I didn't want to essentially, I almost viewed leaving as disrespectful, where that would be like, I'm almost, uh, you know. Yeah, it's almost like a slap to the face to my family who's worked incredibly hard to kind of actually make sure I don't have to come out of university with any debt, which is certainly not a privilege a lot of my peers or people similar to my age are afforded. So kind of between these two things, it just kind of almost felt wrong to do. And that was really, it wasn't like I was like, oh, Shopify's not going to be a great company or I'm going to do way better things if I have a degree. It was kind of almost more like I uh, got a mix of like societal or like my impression of what I should do. And then a bit of almost like moral obligation to kind of the privilege I've been afforded. So maybe I'll share a few things that I take away from your Please. story. I think that there's two words that I wrote down. One is opportunities. The other one is money. And I was thinking about one of the things about youth is that it's sometimes hard to spot opportunities. I think about a friend of mine, my, my first boss in the financial world, during the 2008 crisis, long after I worked for him, um, I couldn't get a hold of him for a little while. And I got a hold of him eventually. And I said, hey, wh- where have you been? He says, ah, oh, sorry, you know, 2008 crisis is happening. Everything's falling apart. I needed to set up some particular investment structure so I could buy Icelandic bonds. 
And I was like, what are you buying Icelandic bonds for? Because, I mean, everything's crashing and currencies are crashing. He said, yeah, the currency's down, you know, 40% in Iceland. It's not in the EU, so it's got its own currency. It's collapsing. And the government is struggling with its banking system and therefore to raise money, they're having to pay a very high interest rate. I believe that I can put money into the Icelandic bonds, get a good interest rate that they're paying from the government, so it's like guaranteed almost. And I believe the Icelandic currency is going to appreciate eventually when we come out of this crisis. So I'm going to win two ways, and I think I've locked in a 20% return for the next 10 years with almost risk-free money. And he said, that's why I've been, that's when I, that's why I've been really busy. And I had already been in the finance world for a while, and I just thought, I didn't see that. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. see it as the opportunity that he saw it as. Now, mm-hmm. I definitely see opportunities much more clearly. And of course, you know, so I think the first message to the listener out there is that, you know, don't beat yourself up too much that you're not a multi-zillionaire no, because of the fact that sometimes the, you have more clarity, you know, as you get older when it comes to recognizing opportunity. Of course, this whole podcast is, you know, hindsight bias where we're looking back with the knowledge that we know now. The second thing is that, you know, I think it's also you demonstrate a little bit about the idea that, you know, money is one aspect of decision making. Absolutely. You know, one aspect, but it's not everything. And so I think that that kind of made me think about it. And then the last thing that I was just thinking about, too, is I think a lot of people have kind of weak decision-making structures. I, I'm not mm. saying that yours was in this case, but I would say for the listeners out there, if you're facing a situation like this right now, you know, take the time to maybe write it down, write down the pros and cons, talk to other people about it, you know, and sometimes that can help you make better decisions. So not always. You got to talk to the right people. But those are some of the things I'm thinking about identifying or opportunities making decisions related to money versus other things. And then, of course, you know, make sure your decision-making process is good. Anything you'd add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of double-clicking into the decision-making process piece specifically, like for the first two, like I completely agree. And I almost like think the second point you made folds a little bit into the decision-making process, which is like understanding like what is your value system and make sure making sure you're optimizing for that, right? So if I was optimizing explicitly like i was or earlier kind of optimizing a little bit more for like relationship with my family kind of the idea of maybe some relationship with myself and how i view myself and maybe not being a quitter maybe that was important to me but kind of going back to the decision making framework piece it's there's a bit of like really understanding truly what is like what i'd call a one-way door or a two-way door which is like when you're making a decision is it actually easily undone or is it permanent and the thing that I really didn't appreciate at the time was I kept saying in both situations, Shopify will always be there and McGill will always be there. But the thing that I didn't really recognize at the time is the kind of temporal nature of the Shopify being there, if you will, where like the Shopify in in a growth stage or a hyper growth stage startup, six to 12 months actually makes an enormous difference. And I didn't actually have that context at the time. I had not really been exposed to that world at a slightly more macro level versus, you know, McGill year over year, like McGill has been there for over 200 years. It's not changing. Okay. Like it's going to be the same if I go like a year before or a year after. Versus Shopify. You can't come back. No, this is a two day, two way door. 
Exactly. It's a two-way <clears> door. As well, it's not like the curriculum is changing that much. Like we're learning like how atoms interact with each other. I'm going to like discover a new atom that's going to validate your entire education like overnight, right? This mm. stuff happens at a much longer time scale versus, you know, technology, especially software <laughs> businesses, like, you know, six, 12, 18 months is actually a huge amount of time. And so really understanding the time scales and the kind of what is a permanent versus a non-permanent decision, I think is incredibly important. Mm. Mm. Okay, so based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, let's think about a young person facing this same type of question with the same knowledge that you had at the time of the situation. What one action would you recommend that they take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah, truthfully, I think I would have most likely spoken a little bit. I don't think I weighed, if I'm actually looking back to like trying to put myself in the position I was back then versus today, I don't think I kind of floated this idea enough with my peer group or with the folks actually at Shopify. So I asked a lot of people, a lot of my classmates at McGill. I asked some of my professors, okay, it's already kind of a bias in information. I asked my parents. And so those are kind of the three inputs. And those are all people who are quote unquote team McGill versus mm. team Shopify. And so actually my inputs were actually incredibly biased. And so if I did if I didn't have anyone kind of weighing the other side of the equation, and if maybe I had spoken to uh, Pierre or another manager at Shopify who maybe had been there the year before, they might have been able to tell me that the year before they were 50 people and a year later they were 300. Okay, well, now that makes me understand growth rates a little bit better, right? Versus uh, I didn't have that input. And so because I didn't have it, I wasn't able to evaluate the decision appropriately. So I think really kind of making sure if you're out of some sort of crossroads, you have like really robust data sources on both sides of a decision, I think is incredibly important. I just want to, I mean, I don't often comment about the advice, but I think it's really valuable. It's one of the lessons that I learned as an analyst, as a financial analyst in the stock market. I look at a company and I try to figure out what the, what the reality is, what the truth is. And yeah. what, what I mean by truth in the stock market is that it doesn't matter what you think in your head about something. What matters is how the market interprets that. In order to understand how the market's going to interpret that, you need to understand the two sides. And I'm going to use what you said. I'm going to say mm -hmm. team A, team B, and say that there's opposing views. And so the best way that an analyst can try to solve that is find those opposing views and find those people and then interview them, talk to them and then synthesize that. And what I've learned, and I love listening to debates and all that, what I've learned is that I've gone into many debates where I've listened and I thought I thought I agree with team A, and by the end I agree with team B. And what you realize is that actually a core principle to gaining new knowledge in our society is debate. And it's Absolutely. because it's because the extremes of any argument, team A versus team B, is where you have so much passion to bring out the absolute strengths of those ideas. They may miss the weaknesses, but you're not really trying to, to judge that at that point. And so that a lot of times, I know in Thailand, people say, we want more unity in our government. We want more unity in our people. And I always say that that is not democracy. Democracy and the discovery of ideas in particular has to do with allowing extreme opposing views 
to exist and then synthesizing those into some, you know, compromise in the case of government or allow them to collide to generate new knowledge. And I just feel like in society, that's something that's quickly disappearing. And instead, it's like, I don't want to hear team B because I'm on team A. So it's a yeah. good reminder for us to think about getting information from both team A and team B. So I think that's very valuable advice for the listeners. Absolutely. So last question. What is your, Absolutely. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Number one goal for the next 12 months is to bring patch. We're about 13 people now. We're going to go to, we're going to grow to about 35 or 40 over the next 12 months. So really finding a bunch of remarkable people to help us take a bunch of carbon out of the air and help a couple of companies do that along with us. Uh, exciting. And um, you're going to have a lot of decisions to make along the way. And we are. And we're going to listen. There's going to be team A, team B, C, D, E, F, and G. We got, there's, it's, unfortunately, it's not just the either or in many cases in, in the world we operate in. Exactly. And I, I think that for the listeners out there, let's watch this space because I think Brennan's got something interesting and you can see he has the ability to go back and think about how to improve upon decision-making. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, reduce risk and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com and when you join, you get that special discount on the Valuation Masterclass Bootcamp so you know how to value companies when you get into Series A funding. <laughs> As we conclude, Brennan, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, not at all. I would really appreciate it, Andrew. I thought I really enjoyed the time. I hope folks understand asymmetric risk and, you know, look, sometimes, sometimes you got to just shoot your shot and, you know, leave it all out there. Boom. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.